you have a Bible and you'll read along with us, we're going to take a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And you pray for me this evening that the Lord would speak what He would have to be heard and silence what He would not have to be heard. Luke, chapter 14. And we're going to begin our reading in verse 25 and read down to verse 35, the end of the chapter. It says this, now Jesus here, just a little context before we begin, Jesus has began this chapter by speaking to the Pharisees, and then he turns to the side and he begins to address a crowd. Uh, as was common with Jesus, crowds tended to follow him, especially when he began to discuss with the religious elites the truth, and Jesus changes his audience to this crowd And here are some things that he says beginning in verse 25. It says this, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but man cast, men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. That will conclude our reading this evening. And... Um, We're going to do something perhaps a little different than is typical when we try to preach tonight, or at least the manner in which I feel compelled to go this evening. Uh, But I'm going to focus on verse 33, or or at least some implications of verse 33. It says this, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The title of our message tonight is, The Intensity of of the gospel, the intensity of the gospel. One of the tragic things in our day is that as our nation has turned from God, they have striven in their turning from the true and living God to at least retain the appearance of godliness. And so it is a fad amongst celebrities, sports figures, politicians, uh, 
whomever to proclaim themselves in order to get in good with the culture at large that they are a Christian. And then what you'll see periodically, and it'll go viral occasionally, you'll see some exchange that some singer or politician has with a talk show host or a person interviewing them. And this interviewer often is not a Christian, but doing what a journalist or someone who's interviewing them ought to do when somebody proclaims to be something, they put them to the test. And they find a fundamental teaching of Christianity, and they say, well, do you believe this? And more times than I can count, I've watched people who I at one time thought something of, perhaps admired in their field of study or expertise, begin to compromise what not distant or not uh, not parts of Christianity that perhaps we could say are, are on the fringe things, which maybe I believe a little different than you, but I'm talking about the fundamental truths of the scriptures that all Christians or self-professed Christians should be able to agree on regardless of denomination. I've heard many of them deny those things in an attempt to somehow soften the harshness of Christian teaching. And if we're not careful, as our nation continues to drift further from the fundamental truths of Christianity, we find ourselves in this awkward place of those that we desire to be friends with, those who will put the appellation upon themselves as Christian, they'll attend church, they'll have some ideas or or Christian ideas that they'll espouse and perhaps even support. And then there comes this breaking point, this dividing line. I would say that as the nation drifts, we must guard against it ourselves, drifting along with everyone. Because as I began to think about this message tonight, and the thoughts have just run over and over me the last 24 hours, I was asking the Lord, Lord, what text would you have me to use to bring out the intensity of, of, of your word and your truth. And there were so many that came to my mind. And really, I was drawn and I began to think of who in the scriptures is the most intense. Who, when they're teaching the word and when they're expounding and preaching and writing, who is it that, has, that says things that feel so contrary to what I desire to be true and the uncontested winner is Jesus Christ. Jesus feels at times extreme for me, for my flesh. And this text that we read to you tonight is just one example of dozens of examples that we could have used to illustrate that Jesus' teaching is often said radical for his day, but friends, it's radical regardless of the day. Not radical in the sense that it is ex- It is extreme and strange, but radical in its requirement of the conformity of our sinful flesh to the standard which God has set for mankind. There are a few teachings contained here. You'll notice the language Jesus uses here. He says, 
If any man come after me and hate, ouch. Let me talk about that here in a minute, what that means. He says to take up his cross. You've got to take up a cross, an instrument, perhaps the worst instrument ever known to mankind of death. And God says, if you want to be a follower of mine, you must pick up your cross. You must forsake all. Now, friends, pause for a moment. That's common Christian vernacular, but consider the implications of it. You, you, everything you love in this life, every person you love in this life, even you, yourself, you must die and come and follow him. You know what, follow, you know what, you know what leaders do to gain a following? They tell you where they're going. That's one of the hardest things about the Christian life is that the just live by faith. We know ultimately where we're going to get to, but day to day we don't know where we're going. If you've never experienced the hardship of walking by faith, you're not doing what Jesus teaches here. Being a Christian is hard. It's rewarding, yes. It's fulfilling, yes. But living and walking by faith in the same way that Jesus did as our example, is torturous. Nothing less than torturous to our flesh. And when we begin to go through the scriptures, you know, one of the things that on occasions where I used to work would happen is that we would be in lunch and and I had a lot of nice people that I worked with, but they were not Christian people. Many of them proclaimed a a form of Christianity, but it wasn't true Christianity. And once in a while, mockery for fundamentalists would get brought up. They'd begin to make fun of people who believe certain things. And as I felt inclined occasionally, I would say, I believe that. I believe that. That was hard to do sometimes. Sometimes I remained silent. At times it was hard to Say, well, if you're making fun of everyone and the whole group of them that had a lot of strong personalities and you've worked with people and you know people who have strong personalities and the way that they can frame something makes it seem like anyone who doesn't believe it is just an imbecile. Sometimes you have to speak up and say that. I want to bring before you a few truths tonight that are intense, but they're true. And we don't want to be conformed to the culture at large. We don't want to lessen them to make them more palatable to our own minds and our own lives. Because if we often believe with the intensity, the extreme truths that Jesus laid out, I find myself when I read it feeling deeply convicted by my lack of conformity to it. And so I want to say, no, that that can't be what it means. And often I'll read it and... Down deep, I know that's what it means. But I just don't want it to be true because I want to be right. I want to, be, I want to remain, remain unscathed. I want to live the way I'm living. I want to keep alive that part of me that I love. That is an adversary to God and His cause. And so I try to twist and I try to turn and 
Tonight I want to try as best I can to bring before you some intense truths that are real, that are fundamental to the scriptures. That if we read it and we really want to know what it says, this is what it means. The first one is this. Man is radically, deeply sinful and rebellious against God as far as a, as far as a creature can possibly be. I've told this before here at the church. When I was a teacher, I used to begin every semester. I taught uh, United States government, and the purpose of the lesson was to try to get kids to know what the founder's view of human nature was, and I won't go into all the details of that. And so I would ask the students, and we would take almost two whole days talking about this. I would draw a continuum on the board, and it was numbered one through ten, and I would say, what is human nature? And I had to go through all these explanations of what human nature is and nature versus nurture and all these different things. And we'd come back to this question and one was evil and 10 was perfect. And five was what John Locke said was a blank slate, tabula rasa. And I would say, what is mankind? Well, I began to notice the first couple of years is that everybody wanted to say a five. They wanted to avoid the question. So finally, in the preceding years, I said, I'll let you explain if you think it's a five, but I want to force you to make a choice. Stand on the sixth side or the four side if you think you're a five. And so every year, every semester rather, I had somewhere between 130 to 200 kids that would stand up in front of the class, seven, eight, ten at a time, and they'd stand on this continuum. And out of 150 kids on average every single year, or excuse me, every semester, I would generally have about one or maybe two kids that would stand on the one or the two. I had kids in larger quantity by far stand on the side of 10 much more often than one or two. And I'd have them give their explanations. I'd say, why do you say that? And then as they would tell me about how good mankind is, how, yes, we do some things wrong, but you know, in our hearts down deep, we're really good. And they would try to give examples of good things that people did. And then I would try to start gently, depending on the student, I'd I'd gently start asking him questions. Well, what about this situation? And what about these thoughts that I have that I I know you have? And what about situations that happen in our school? And and I would give them hypotheticals. And then all of a sudden, other kids would start popping in. And they'd start saying, yeah, and, and it would become noticeable over the course of the class that there's no way we're good. So almost every class would begin to shift. And here's where it began to shift. Okay, we're definitely on the bad side of the scale, but we're on the higher half of the bad side of the scale. We're not terrible. So then I'd ask questions like, you know, Hitler was a baby once. And people held him and likely like they do with children now, they'd look over after he was first born and say, oh, he's so perfect. But he wasn't. The seed of what he became was there at the moment of his conception. Why? Because it was the seed of man. The Adamic nature was right there. And he grew. No doubt he made friends. No doubt he had a a, a life where people could orient him in a certain way that, you know, he's a nice kid. He's a good person. 
As he became a leader, did you know that he was the Time Magazine Person of the Year? So there was a time, even when he became the Fuhrer of, of, of Germany, that people globally thought he's a great man. And yet the seeds of vileness, nothing had changed except what was within already came out. And he had the power to exercise that which had been there from the very beginning. The Bible make no bones about it. As we look at you children today, sometimes I fear that as you come into the house of God, and as is stated very often, that you are a good kid and you might be in the sense that you obey your parents and you try to strive to make good grades and you behave in a way with your peers that might rise superior to them, but you're good compared to what? You're good compared to the standards that we have set up in society towards those other people that we look upon and and judge people based upon. But I want you to know that as you stand before a holy God, there is nothing good about you. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful. Listen listen to the words, the, the specific words. Listen to them. Above all things... You ever watched an animal prey on another animal? You ever seen a video? Maybe you've seen it in person. Oh, we just actually this morning, I think it was this morning in our, um, our chapel service or our, our morning service, one of the kids requested prayer for their chicken because the hawks had been getting to their chickens, right? I bet that is a traumatic thing to look at as a kid, isn't it? It'd be traumatic for an adult to see that. Watch the mercilessness of an animal, And yet the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Notice the adjectives there. Notice the description. It doesn't say, well, yeah, we've got some bad in us. But for the most part, there are some redeeming qualities. Listen, lost friend, tonight, you are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the Bible concludes, who can know it? I think what it's it's implying is this. Who can know the boundlessness of the sin that lies in a man's heart? Oh, but it's not just your heart. You know, your heart's like the control center. It takes the conscience and it takes, at least as I understand, that's the best I can understand it. It takes the emotions and the conscience and the mind and, and the flesh. And it takes the, all these things. And your heart is that control center that kind of learns how, what's, what's to yield to. Which influence within you to yield to. And it says that is infected. Well, I want to tell you tonight, if that is infected, all the rest is too. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8, I believe it's verse 7. It says the carnal mind is an enmity with God. It's an enemy to God. Your mind, this is what that means. When you're strategizing how to live life, your life is strategizing in a way that is an enemy to God's will for your life. You know how I know that? Because of this. You're thinking about you, your will, what you want. That's at the root of all sin. At the root of every single sin a person can can commit is one four-letter word, self. Selfishness. You want to obey the dictates of your own rather than obey the dictates of God. And so your flesh has 
even to your mind, it's been infected to where your mind conceives of things that are an enemy towards God and what he wants for you. And it says, it continues in this verse by saying this, it is not subject to the law of God. It is not going to yield itself to God's law. And it continues and it says, and neither indeed can be. Polar opposite. Your, your heart is infected. Your mind is infected. Your will is infected. Paul discussing the war that goes on in our flesh in the book of Romans. He says, when I will to do good, evil is present with me. You know, the older I get, the more I'm amazed I am at my ulterior motives. You ever notice that? For just a moment, God through his spirit allows the inner man to rise up as a saved individual. And you desire something pure and good that would glorify God alone. And your motives in that moment is solely set on, I want to give glory to God. And even in the process of having those thoughts and performing those actions and saying those prayers and preaching that message and giving that testimony and singing that song and evangelizing that person, those subtle, intrusive fallen nature of your mind and your will comes in and begins to reveal to you, here's how this action will benefit you. Here's how you'll be well-liked and well-thought of. Paul says, when I will to do good, evil is present with me. In one place, the writer says that no good thing dwells inside of me. Lost friend tonight, I don't care what the world says, what your parent says, and even what our omission of the extremity of your sin may inadvertently tell you. Or in other words, we don't preach on sin hard enough perhaps so that it does not reveal the blackness of what we are. We don't reveal, we don't get into great detail about how awful the sins of the heart are. And so perhaps by omitting those hard portions of truth, it gives the idea that, you know what, maybe I'm okay, maybe I'm decent. I know the Bible says that I'm sinful, but I'm not that bad. Even if in our omissions do not be deceived by the fact that you are sinful, evil, wicked, and deserving of God's judgment. Isaiah, writing in the first chapter, says in a vision and a description of this, that he had sores from the crown of his head down to the soles of his feet. What a picture of the sin that besets all of us from the top to the bottom of who we are. Listen, don't be deceived, friend. That's an intense thing, isn't it? You know, once in a while I'll see a video of somebody holding like an animal, a little baby lion or a little baby tiger and, or maybe some uh, wolf or, you know, some ferocious animal and, and they'll, you know, be talking to it like a little baby and, and be saying, you know, you're so cute and you're so pretty and all those things. And it doesn't when it's a baby, but again, the seed of what it's going to become is right there. And if it had the ability, it's restrained by its incapability. But when it grows... To full size, that's exactly what it'll do. It'll kill you. And you know that's how sin in our children is. Sin in our children, it's there. And it's potent. And it's intense. And it's malevolent. And it's vindictive. And it's evil. And it's desperately wicked. 
You just got to give it a little time to grow. That's why God is so meticulous in his instruction to parents to keep their heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Guard them, guide them, teach them all of my commandments because of the wickedness in there. That's an intense truth, but it's true. What else is an intense truth we find in the scripture? The judgment as a result of that sin. Listen, listen to me tonight, please. Please hear me tonight. God's judgment is something that is unutterably deep and fearful. Words could never adequately describe the loftiness of God's judgment. The Bible gives many descriptions of that awful place. It tells us that it's a place of outer darkness where there's weeping. People are there right now and that's what they're doing. They're weeping. Gnashing of teeth. There's an unquenchable fire. Some of the description of it. What is the consciousness of the people who are there? It's one thing, you know, if you, if you go into surgery and they put you under. That's, a, that's an intense, painful thing. But because the advent of modern medicine, you're not conscious to it until you wake up. It's numb. You don't feel it. You don't sense it. And so there are people today that would distort what God's judgment is by saying when a person dies, they're just annihilated. They just don't exist anymore. It's not true. That somehow their senses will be dulled and that they will not experience in full gravity the judgment of God. That too is not true. The Bible gives us, and I think it's so purposeful that he gives us the story of a man in Luke chapter 16 and the vividness of that story as I read it over and over. I can, I can spread out my reading of it over the course of years or months and sometimes I am so struck by the, how palpable, how much feeling, how much human experiential knowledge is involved in that story. It says when that man, that man Lazarus, opened up his eyes in hell that he saw things. He had one of his senses. But how did he open open up his eyes? Being in torments. He saw. That means he also, if he was in torments, he felt. He heard. He spoke. He remembered. All of that. He remembered not only those things, you know what he also desired? He desired to taste. Only sense that I can't find in there is smell. Now I think the book of Revelation, at least I infer from it that there is a smell. So we know by the judgments of God that there are All five senses are there and that your memory is still present. And as he was recalling, he could remember things about Lazarus. He was able to identify him across that great gulf. He remembered the poor man. He remembered his five brothers. He knew there were so many things that he could remember. Hell is an awful place. Awful place. People today joke about it to take the sting out of it. But notice what they joke about. Notice what they joke about. They don't joke about the flames not being there. 
They joke about what I consider to be the worst part of hell. This is my opinion. Worst part of hell. Those things to me are not the worst part of hell. I'll tell you when I was, that, 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 I, that I began to think this. A few years ago, the last church, the only church, the other church I pastored there at Whiteland, I was preparing a message about widows and orphans and how it's our job as Christians to attend to the needs of the widows and orphans. And I began to think, well, why the widows and orphans? What is peculiar about them compared to all others? Well, loneliness. A widow is someone who's lost her husband, generally, or vice versa, and that they've been bonded for such a long period of time, and now that attachment is ripped apart and they're alone. An orphan is deprived of that natural thing that God created for whatever reason, and they're deprived of the feeling of being at home, being taken care of, being cared for. Loneliness. And then, cross my mind, you know, when we're, God has given the authority for the church to discipline its members. And the primary means by which we're to do that is to remove fellowship, not just formally, but also informally. We withdraw from them. Why? So they're alone. And that struck me. And then I had this experience. I went back to this experience. One summer I was living on my own and my roommate moved out for a couple months. My soon-to-be wife had gone overseas for 12 or 13 months. I was working by myself. And I was alone all the time. I was just alone. And it started to bother me. I'm not a particular, I'm not an overly social person, but I began then to realize how much a person is wired to have company and friends and, and talk and have fellowship Known of people who, hardest part about being in the hospital during COVID. That's what I heard more than anything. The hardest part about being in the hospital during COVID was I was isolated and alone. I heard people say nurses would just come in as as short amount of time as they could and then they'd leave. They wouldn't talk. So then you had to fight that other beast, depression and mental health and the isolation, it does something to you. I read a book about a martyr. Spent 12 years in prison over in Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany when it occupied, I believe it was Poland, and Richard Wurmbrand. He began to talk about his experience and the part that jumped out was the hardest part was being in isolation. Being absolutely alone. You know, the strange thing about hell is that all this weeping all of this gnashing of teeth. And yet you are banished. You're banished. We heard this week already people saying, you know, what was so convicting to me is that I knew my family would be in heaven and I would be separated. What is death? Separation. When a person becomes lost, what happens? They're separated from God. Never to be reconciled without the blood of Jesus Christ. They're apart. What happens when a person dies? Their spirit within them is separated from their body. I believe the worst part of hell is that every part of your experience is experienced alone. When people joke about hell, what do they joke about? 
I'm going to be there with my buddies. And we're going to have a good old time. Not going to happen. Not at all. Maybe you're saying that because that's the part of hell that you most greatly fear. That's an intense truth, isn't it? Here's the worst, I don't want to say the worst part, here's another part of it. It's eternal. It's eternal. You ever waited for something for a really long time? I'm not talking about six months or a year, I'm saying a really long time. But maybe, you know, I could think retirement. You know what a lot of people wait for now? Start and the investor comes to you at 22 and says, if you'll put your money here and you'll do this. And, and I remember the first time that somebody came in and gave me that spiel, I was like, 65, that's a long way, buddy. It's a long way away. It felt forever away. And then time does its thing, doesn't it? It takes off. And you get in the heat of life. And you don't measure it by the hours like you did when you were sitting in school looking at the clock. You measure it by months and then years. And suddenly you say, what, what just happened? What just happened? Imagine being somewhere in eternal torments, lonely, knowing there's no end. How torturous. Rather this, would it not just magnify the torture already there? And yet... That's not some hidden opinionated truth. That's fundamental Christianity, what Jesus, Paul, all of them taught. What's another intense truth? Jesus endured God's judgment for you. How awesome. Of all the truths, you know, a few weeks ago, we have minister school here, and our first devotional lesson was Brother, uh, Brother Mike Collins. He's a doctor, and he, his lesson was about feet. And he began to teach us about the feet of Jesus and feet in general. And, and one thing really stood out to me. There was a number of things that he said that really intrigued me, but one thing that he stood out to me was he said when Jesus was crucified, um, his, his legs were crossed, and that nail had to go through the joint bones on both of his joints. And, and I think I had known that. You know, it had to go right here so that it wouldn't rip and it could hold the weight. But he said something kind of in passing that I had never thought about before that, that so magnified the pain of what Jesus experienced. He said when he pushed up to be able to breathe, he didn't push up with his feet. He had to push up with his ankle bones. Imagine how unnatural that would be. I mean, we've never experienced that before, right? Unless you've had a a broken or a dislocated ankle and you accidentally took a couple steps on it or something like that. Maybe you felt the excruciating pain that would come. But imagine hanging for hours, knowing that as you're hanging there, every breath that you're taking, you must rise up to take a breath. And the only way you can rise up is by crossing this legs or crossed and you're pushing up and how unnatural that dislocation must have felt. You ever had, I had a, a dislocated finger one time and perhaps what did more than the hurt was just the awkwardness of how it felt. This wasn't right. And it made me cringe. The feeling was so unnatural. 
the intensity of what Jesus went through goes beyond words. Began with the condescension of Jesus coming to the world. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. God exalted in heaven, not needing anything to satisfy himself, not needing, not dependent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, completely in a sense content with who he is. There is nothing that can be added to him or taken away from him. He is who he is. And yet that God became flesh and took upon him every weakness that you and I feel. I love reading in the book of Hebrews when it tells us that he came and he experienced life just like you and me. The temptations that were proposed, the yielding to those in authority who had no no business being in authority. You ever done that before? You ever had a boss that had no business being over you or being in authority? Just train wrecked everything that was involved. And yet it was your duty, it was your responsibility as somebody underneath them. I've got to subject myself to that. Jesus did that to everyone that he had subjected himself to. For every day of his life. One time he was a child. He saw the imperfections of his parents better than anybody could. And yet not in stubborn defiance did he speak up, but he yielded himself as a son You think it's hard to obey your parents' children? Imagine being Jesus. Perfect. Knowing what was perfect. And yet still, as he did there, and it tells us in Isaiah 53, whenever he was being beaten, opened not his mouth. Remained reverential to the authority of his parents. Growing up, you think our politics is crooked? We don't know anything of crooked. You can talk about crooked. Go back in history and read about Whatever nation you want to read about. The Romans, the Greeks, whoever. It wasn't by democracy. It wasn't by popular vote. Elections, rigged elections. None of that. No, it was by corruption. I went over to Kenya one time after an election. I was walking around by the Tom's neighborhood and there were X's on some houses and there was something, I don't know what it was, but a symbol on other houses. And so I was walking, I said, what is that? He said, if you had an X on your house, you voted for the other person and you were brought up and either beaten or killed. Whoa. When did this happen? About two months ago. No less perverse during Jesus' time, I would argue more so. Because the influence of what is good and right now wasn't there then. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself and became obedient. See, friends, imagine the torture that that was. Just doing that. Imagine seeing the religious elites, the perversion that existed in the priesthood. You're the ultimate high priest. They're meant to symbolize you. And they're perverting it. And there Jesus faithfully submits. The condescension of Christ coming from his lofty position as God and becoming God in the flesh. God did that. You know, Muslims, that's, that's the, from what I understand, in, in Islam, the biggest doctrinal struggle that Muslims have is in the condescension of God. 
they can't accept. Because in their mind, God is so high, so lofty, so far from fallen creatures. There's no way that Jesus could have been God. They believe in Jesus. They think he did good teachings. They don't think that necessarily he died. Most of them believe that he was actually taken from the cross and survived the cross and then went on to live a life. But listen, one of the biggest problems they have with the Christian conception of God is they say, that is too much for God to condescend to earth. And yet what I say the Bible teaching shows us is that that is part of what makes him the greatest being you could ever conceive. Is that he is so lofty, he is so holy, he is so high and apart from sin yet of his own accord he came to this life and took upon him the appearance of sinful flesh and suffered just like you and I that he might be a faithful high priest able to intercede for all of us. His incarnation is the cherry on top of what makes him so great. God, who at sundry times in divers' manners spoke in time past to us by the prophets, how now spoken to us by his son. Oh, this is the way I imagine it. You know, God sent prophets. He said, okay, I formed you in your mother's womb. That's what he said about Jeremiah. I formed you in your mother's womb. Now you go to Jerusalem and you warn them about bondage and about their own sin. They didn't listen. You know, and I, I think of God, and this is a human mindset of it. You know, he, has, he creates Moses and he, he, he creates Moses in the womb. He said, I'm going to send you for this great purpose. And I'm going to have you to do this and bring my people. And, and they've cried out for 400 years and I'm, I'm going to do this. And they all went. All these prophets went. And he finally got to the last one, John the Baptist. He said, okay, your job is not to go and proclaim all these things. Uh, let me back up. It's to prepare the way for me. You go and you get the way ready. Because I'm done sending prophets. I'm coming. He not only came to do, but he came to speak. I love that about him. You know, sometimes as Christians, we got to be careful because sometimes some of us feel more comfortable in the silent living out of the faith. We're afraid of confrontation. We're, we're not as social as other people are. And we're afraid to talk. And yet, if we take Jesus' life for the first 30 years, he didn't talk and his own brother didn't know he was the son of God. Right? So we know he was perfect. But if all the Christian life was about was just living a good life, It looks like in the life of Jesus, it demonstrates those first 30 years, that's not enough for people to know the truth. And yet there are other people who seem to have no interest in living out the truth because they don't want to confine and restrain and put to death their flesh. And so they love to talk religion and talk Christ and sing and shout and worship. But they don't like to live. And what do we see in the person of Jesus? The perfect unity of both. The man who lived according to every jot and tittle of God's standard and the man who spoke every word that the Father gave to him. That's why in the prayer, you know, the prayer before his crucifixion, what satisfaction, I don't even know how to say what I'm trying to, what accomplishment you must have felt as Jesus to, you've said all the things that God commissioned you to say and now you're about to go do the most challenging thing that God has called you to do, and that is go to the cross. And you said, Lord, I've given to them everything that you gave to me. I've, showed, I've spoken it to them. And now it's time for him to go do. That scripture in Isaiah 53, 
that tells us in a prophecy 700 years before the coming of this Messiah is so concisely expresses what Jesus did. He's despised and rejected of men. It would take an impossible number of sermons to express the sufferings of Christ, beginning with his condescension or his incarnation, going throughout his life. But might we just for a moment point to the fact that he was despised and rejected of men. I would prefer pain, physical pain, to the despising and rejection of my fellow man. I think most people would. There's something about the discomfort of being disliked and hated, spoken about evilly. There's something about people looking at your face and being malevolent towards you. There's something about being in the presence of someone that you know there's tension that exists. You just don't like it. Jesus said he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid his, were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Imagine you come for this purpose as a servant. That's why you've come. You've come to just serve people. That's all you've come to do. Serve God and serve your fellow man. You ever not been appreciated for something you did? You ever really worked hard for somebody and they didn't even have the, the kindness to just say, hey, I really appreciate what you did. Thank you. Is there anything worse than whenever you have a relationship built upon expectations? And then when you don't meet their expectation, they leave and they talk about you? That's a painful thing, isn't it? That's what we did to Jesus. Lost friend, that's what you do to Jesus. He comes and he does all these things. And his motive is reconciling you. His motive is preventing the banishment, preventing the judgment of God. He said, God, allow their judgment, allow your wrath to fall on me. I'll swallow it up. I'll take that cup of suffering. And I'll drink it for all men. What it says, he tasted death for every man. The chastisement of their peace was upon me. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He came to be sin for you. You know, that vile, that defiled part of you, every single part of your inward man that we talked about earlier, Christ came and said, take that, put all of that upon me. I will become sin for them that I might swallow up the punishment and judgment of God. I want to take upon that. I want their chastisement. I want the whippings. I want the beatings. I want the sufferings of loneliness. I want the separation from God. I want the anguish. I want the rejection. I want the humiliation. I want all of it put upon me. He did that for you. He did that for you. He tasted it. You know, again, vivid words, isn't it? 
Does it taste so poignant, so bright? Such a descriptive word. It tasted death for every man. What a, what a beautiful analogy Brother Brian gave the other night of those weights. Man, that just that, that hit me with such force. He said when he took upon him the sins of the world, it was as if all of us were taking those and just beating them. And imagine with Jesus, what it was was as the sins of the world are crashing down on him. Our depravity knows no end, so what do we do? We pick up another. We dash him against him. We pick up another. And we dash him against him. And then like those Roman soldiers, we don't look upon him with pity. We don't esteem him. We spit. Ridicule ridicule and jeer and mock and laugh and punch and say, who was it? If you're the Messiah, you really know it all. Who was it that hit you? And Jesus, what does he do? Isaiah 53 tells us. He opens not his mouth. If that happened to me, I would open my mouth. I had to start opening my mouth in the garden when they came to unjustly get me. And I probably would have spoken my case all the way. And I'd have gone to all those fake trials. And I'd have listened to all those false witnesses. And I can just tell you I know about myself. I'd come up with every, every angle of justice because I'm a justice-driven person. Injustice gets, gets underneath my skin perhaps more than anything else. I tried to vindicate myself. Oh, but the pain's not over. His friend. His friend. That man, Peter, whom he loved. How many times did Jesus so patiently and tenderly teach Peter? How many times did he sleep under the stars? How many times they have light-hearted, fun conversation? And that man, I was reading in a different version one day, and <clears throat> I noticed something that I'd never noticed is that um, the woman at the gate recognized that Peter had been with Jesus. And, and John came and let him in, helped to, to, to get him in. I'm not expressing myself well. Peter gets in and doesn't speak up. He doesn't want to testify on Jesus' behalf. Now think of your best friend in the whole world. Your spouse, your childhood friend from the time you were 10, the one that said, best friends forever. And there you are, bloodied, Beaten. Oh, and here's the sadness of it. You had just promised them, I'll die with you. You had just given your word. You had just said, I I love you more than anybody else loves you. I love you. And then, 
in the moment of most desperate need. Keeps his mouth shut. And then somebody from the crowd says, Hey, you're a Gal- you've been with him. You're a Galilean. You're, you're, your speech gives you away. You've got an accent. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't know him. Now imagine if your best friend says, not only doesn't speak, but then says, I don't even know them. Have you ever done something you regretted? Like in the moment you did, I mean, within seconds you thought, oh. Have you ever spent some time and you thought, if I could go back and get another opportunity, I I would write it. Lest Peter thought it was one of those moments where he could write the wrong a few moments. If he just, he spoke too quick, another person recognizes him. And yet again, he denies. And then a third time, somebody does. He doesn't just deny. He denies while cursing the denial. We esteemed him not. Not one person. He came unto his own. His own received him not. And even those closest to him rejected him. How intense the sufferings of Jesus Christ were to bring about reconciliation between you and God. And yet Jesus voluntarily endured it. Why? The book of Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Let's look at two things very briefly and we'll be done. What else is intense? Well, this scripture that we read tonight highlights the intensity. You know, a lot of people don't like this part of it, and perhaps you're a lost person tonight, and you may not like this. The intensity of what Jesus requires to be saved. It's intense, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could walk down here, and I could say, anybody wants to be saved, come down here. And I had a little script, and I could say, okay, now you say this. I believe Jesus died on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He died on your sin, behalf of your sins. He rose again. Do you believe that? I could shake their hand and say, well, congratulations, you're going to heaven. Wouldn't that be so nice and easy? And that's what the world has made out salvation today. It's just this assent to a creed, set of doctrines, set of beliefs. And that's what salvation is. If I just mentally say I'm okay, I agree with that. But that's not how God designed it. He doesn't require you to carry your sin, but he does require you to experience the weight of your sin. That is conviction. You would be crushed under your sin. There was one man that could carry your sin. That was Jesus. But God, through the Holy Spirit, in reproving the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, allows you to feel the weight and guilt of your sinfulness and what you have done to God. And that's intense sometimes, isn't it? It hurts. And so the message is, you must forsake all. 
You must have no other gods before me. Every idol, every want, every desire, even yourself. You must desire and want Christ more than it all. The word was testified about tonight. You must surrender all of it. It's really hard for a man. Why? Because our heart is deep. Who knows the depth of a man's heart? Who knows down deep the things that I'm clinging on to that if put to the test, I would not abandon, I would not forsake. Oh, I hope to think that if it was ever a time where my wife and my children's safety was jeopardized, that I would stand up and be the bigger man and and allow to lay down my life for them. But in reality, I don't know. I hope I would be the bigger man and if asked whether I believed in Christ or not, that I would not recant. But I don't know. I hope that if I was in Nazi Germany and saw the rise of Hitler and was being pressured my life or my family's life or come and be part of this wicked, evil system, that I would stand up. And isn't it a clever thing that whenever you watch stories like that, you always imagine yourself as the good guy? Don't you do that? I always imagine myself as the good guy, as the hero, as the one who is saying, no, I won't go along with this. I don't know. And you don't either. There are things in your heart you don't even know about. And God says, you know what? You've got to come to a place where you turn from yourself and dependence upon everyone. And you must just fall. You must just surrender. And friend, I know that is hard. It's hard. It's intense. Who was it? Was it somebody last night, I think, said, yeah, uh, I believe Sister Carrie up here said, I got to the place, and I remember Brother Roger Elliman back home in, in Indianapolis. He, he used to say, before he got saved, listen to the extent of his prayer. He said he tried everything. For months he tried everything to get saved, saying everything. And he got, he got so upset. He got so frustrated he wasn't getting saved. So he determined, I'm giving up. Tonight I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going to go to hell. That's it. I'm done. I can't do this. And he got to this place that he prayed this. Lord, if you have to send me to hell to get glory, that's where I'll go. Wow. That's desiring the Lord, isn't it? I want you to be so lifted up that if that's where I can lift you up, that's where I'll go. That's a hard message. It's intense. But it's what God requires of every single person that will ever be saved. Last thing. The reward of salvation is very intense. Everything we've described has been pretty intense, hasn't it? Extreme. Oh, but let me tell you. What happens... When God saves a soul, there is no hyperbole that can exaggerate what God does. Oh, the moment that he saves us. And you know, the the amazing thing is the experiential side of it. We experience a part of it. But our capacity to even receive, to even intake what has happened is limited. We can't even conceive. We can't even 
allow. That's why the Bible describes it as we get the earnest of the Spirit. It's a down payment. It's a partial amount. You know, when you got saved, and we've heard this week thing described as peace or love or joy, and we heard these people saying, I felt forgiven. All of that experiential part of salvation is only one small piece of what you have the capacity to receive of the whole of what God gave you. When God saves a person, God, your defiled, vile body becomes the temple of God himself. That fallen nature inwardly that is corrupted and defiled that has no good thing in it God takes that spirit that is fallen and he removes it entirely and he puts his own spirit the Bible says you become a new creature you are less like yourself than what the most uh, the, the most rabid the most intense the most uh, vicious animal that there ever was to the most cuddly the most soft the most desirable little baby that you could ever see your nature the extreme difference in those two does not begin to ext- explain the extremity of what God took out and what what he replaced it with. How does the Bible describe it? It's like you're in darkness. And then suddenly there's light. It's like you're, you're full of sores of leprosy. And then all in one moment, you're pure and you're clean. It's like you had five husbands And you were ashamed to even come out to the well with anybody else because of the stigma to make you want to run back to the city and look people directly in the eye and say, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. I'm always amused by those which are shy that get saved. They can't even look people in the eye and they're backwards and they want to hide themselves. And then God makes them a new creature in Christ and they begin to look up and they can't shut up and they can't stop testifying. They can't stop singing and praising God those first few days because they're so excited about what God has done. What's happening is what took place on the inside is making its way out and it's bubbling over. Streams of living water are coming out and they're saying, look what God did. It's a new nature inside of you. God takes that hell-bound, judgment, wrath-bound soul and he makes you an heir of God. And a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Oh, I love that. I love the joint heir with Jesus Christ. I love that, the, the way that, that is described. Isn't that so wonderful? Jesus is highly exalted. And he has a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth. That every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet, I am a joint heir with his exaltation. Oh, they're not going to glorify me like they do him. But I'm going to be a beneficiary of everything that he's a beneficiary of. He took that vile heart of mine and he gave me his righteousness. I'm pure. I'm clean. I'm free. I love learning about, I love singing about the freedom that's in Christ. 
It's one of the things in one of the songs we just sung. I love that. Because what comes to my mind is this. I can't escape in this flesh the fallenness of my nature. And I hate it. Sometimes I go to God in prayer loathing who I am and what I am. And then I come into the house of God and I sing that this spirit was made free of that bondage of sin. And one day, we're going to celebrate this Sunday, aren't we? This defiled body is going to be free from even the slightest inclination of any sin. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know, we know, we shall be like him. I can't handle that. That's too much for me. That God in salvation would grant me not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, but that he would make me a joint heir with Jesus Christ and give me the promise that not only my spirit, but my flesh will be like him. Free from bondage, free from slavery, with the capacity to enjoy fellowship with God with no veil, no separation between us. I will be able to behold God and embrace God and love God without the shame. Like, you, you imagine if I got in the presence of the holy God, I would be like Isaiah, as Sister Megan testified yesterday, that I would say, I'm an unclean man, I have unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. But when I get in the presence of God, I might bow because of his holiness, but because of his transformation of who I am, I am technically worthy to be in his presence because I am like him. So he doesn't expel me from the garden. So he doesn't erect a veil between me and the holy place. So he has torn that place and I can come boldly to his presence. Not just in prayer as in in this life. But I can come into his actual presence and pass the veil into the gates of heaven. And I get to see him. It's amazing to me the consideration. Think about this for a moment and I'm done. You will see God. Nothing you can do about it. Can't change that. I don't want to change it. But like, I'm going to experience that. I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him. And I'm going to be there. You talk about holy ground. That place was built holy. It was built a holy temple where no sin has ever defiled that place. Oh, this place where Moses was became holy because God was there. That place was designed. Nothing sinful, that's what the Bible says, nothing abominable can enter into that place. And I'll be there. And I'll stand before him and praise God through Jesus Christ. I won't be ashamed. I won't be afraid. I'll be at home. I'll be accepted. Brother Brian showed us this beautiful picture this morning of the prodigal and his father putting, you know, he stunk and he had all these things and he put this robe on him and he killed the fatted calf. That analogy pales in comparison to what our entrance into the presence of the Father will be like. And yet that very presence, lost friend, you will stand before God in the same way that I do. And your reception will not be the same. 
and you stand before God in that great white throne judgment, and there is a distinction between me and you. God made it. Everybody will see it. There is a distinction between those that are saved and those that are lost. And there you will go before God, and you will give an account for your sins done in the flesh. Every idle thought, every idle word, every misdeed, you'll stand before God judged. And people ask, as God came back for the rocks and the mountains to hide their face, but no rock, no mountain is immovable for the Lord. He'll remove every obstacle and He'll stand you before Him. And all men, great and small, all demons, all angels, all unborn children that died will stand before God. One day I was studying to preach and it said, we'll give an account. If I went to my boys and I said, give me an account of what happened, who's doing the talking? They are. We'll give an account for things done in the flesh. Sometimes we can hide in our silence, can't we? If our parents lecture us or yelling at us, we just have to be silent. Just endure it. It was always uncomfortable with students when they start acting up when I'd ask them questions and make them answer in front of everybody. Suddenly the bully, suddenly the bad kid retreats. Why? Because they don't want to talk in front of everybody. Their misdeed is obvious. And they want to hide in silence. They would rather me reprove them and lecture them and yell at them. But to say, give an account. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Why did you reject the Son of God? Why, when the gospel was preached, when the Spirit drew you, when you knew God was calling you, why did you retreat? Why did you run? Why did you hide? Give an account. Speak. Give an account before God. What a harrowing picture, isn't it? True. Intense. But true. Tonight, if you're lost, I know it's hard. I know it's intense. That's what God calls you to. And let me tell you, as you've heard all week, it's worth it. It's worth the surrender. Won't you come if God is calling you? Won't you face him head on? Face this problem head on. Bow and surrender at his feet. Let's all stand and sing tonight. If you need to pray, won't you come and and seek the Lord?